right. Happy today, Tuesday. Happy Tuesday, everyone. Welcome to Shut Up and Grind. This is episode, I failed. I believe this is episode number 130 of Shut Up and Grind with me. All right, so today we're going to be talking about grief. And so I want to say first and foremost, we're not going to tell you how to grieve. We're going to go how to grieve. We're going to go over different ways to help you cope. Like my family alone in the last two years, I, I lost an aunt. I lost my father. I lost another aunt. I lost a cousin and a two-year-old, my two-year-old nephew. So like it was just a lot of, a lot of loss in these last couple of years. So I'm sure between my experiences and my guest experiences, we're both going to be able to share a lot of stories of how we navigated through all of this. But if you are new to the show, so this is all about overcoming obstacles. So obviously, I just told you what today's obstacle is. It's going to be dealing with the loss, the loss of loved ones. And also, if you're new to the show and you don't know who the heck I am, let me introduce myself. I started doing workshops and doing groups where I'm getting up in front of of others, like outside of the gym setting and talking about resilience and perseverance and goal setting and vision and taking action. You should know what one hour of your time is worth. You should know the value that you bring to the marketplace. You know what your passion is. Starts with clarity of vision. If you don't have the clarity of vision, whatever next thing you get, you're not going to see it through because you don't have the clarity of vision. So the, the point of my pain was being told you will never run or jump again. And all that stuff, I was like, you know what? Like, I want to be able to take this even bigger. If you know why you do what you do, you have to know how to charge for what you do. That's how you're going to change your life, and that's how you're going to leave a legacy for your children and your family. you got to know your work. All right, so a little bit of insight into my background. So, again, we're going to be talking about dealing with grief today. And so before I bring on my guest, I wanted to say that there's, there's different levels. So that's why I said earlier, there's, there's, really no, there's really no right or wrong way to do it. We're just going to share tips because circumstances matter. So take my aunt, for instance. She had cancer, but she passed away in her sleep. So my, my uh, uncle thought that she was just sleeping in. And then he goes in to check on her and she, had, she was passed away. You know, with my father, he died with three generations of us around his his bed. This is right before COVID happened. And then when my cousin passed away, she was living up up in New Jersey, drove down to, I believe it's Georgia, Georgia or Florida, where her, her son lives. She wanted to see her son and her grandkids. She gets down there to see them. And then she started feeling a little ill, ended up going to the hospital and ended up dying of a heart attack. You know, so it's like there's three completely different scenarios. And, you know, like with us, we knew that we were going to lose my father. In the other two situations, they were completely blindsided. So circumstances definitely matters when it comes to loss. So why I just keep saying that there's no, there's no right or wrong way. So stories that I'll share about what we did with my father, it may not resonate with someone who was hit by a sudden loss, because that's completely different. Like you weren't prepared for it. Like we had time to take it in and know that at some point we were going to have to end this care. So, but I'm just curious to hear my guest thought on the matter. So help me welcome to the show, Emily Thoreau Threat, author of Living and Loving Your Way Through Grief. I believe that's the name of it. Come on in. That's right. All right. How are you doing today? I'm great. great. I'm, I'm happy to be here. It's five o'clock in the morning here in Maui. Oh, wow. Wow. Out in Maui. See? Yeah. Right. And you chose to spend your morning with us. That's awesome. I appreciate that. All right. So I'm here in Maui. All right. So are, are you from Hawaii? Uh, I've lived here for two years now. Okay. All right. Not, what, not what, two years. I've lived here for six years. I'm sorry. Oh. I don't know where the two came from. <laughs> what Early. brought you out there? Um, my husband was 
knowing that he was approaching his final days and he had lived here years ago and loved it here. And we'd visited Maui several times and while we were married and uh, he just said, you know, I really like to be living in Maui. So they sold our house and moved to Maui and we're here two years before he died. And then okay. I've been here four more years since then. Wow. Well, I mean, I guess there's worse places you could be. Oh, I love it. It's a great place to be during the pandemic, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, true, true. I guess being disconnected from, from the mainland helps. Yeah. All right. Awesome. All right. So who is Emily? How would you how would you describe yourself? Give me the, uh, the two minute bio. I am a happy person. I'm su- kind of surprised to be saying that at this point in my life, but my life is very good. I have done so many different things in my life, lots of different careers, and I've loved every one of them. And I'm very happy now to have discovered how to help people who are grieving and spend a lot of time doing that. So I'm, I'm a helpful person. I'm a compassionate person. And most of all, happy, I think, is, is very important. Yes, ha- happiness is very, very good. All right. Yeah, so like just speaking of grief, like, you know, my, my mom sent sent us a text with uh, my siblings, you know, there's seven of us siblings saying that, you know, if, if we want anything, come, come and get it because she's selling everything and she's selling the house. She's like, you know, it's time for her to move on. So she's she's reaching that point to where just, no, I think she was like 16 or 17 when she, she met my dad and when he just passed two years ago. So it's like she went her entire life with 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 him. So I think that adjustment for her, it's, you know, it's taken it's taken some time. But I think she's finally ready to, to step out and, uh, you know, try to try, try to just pick up the pieces and move forward. You know, so it's like that's a tough thing. It's a tough thing to do. It is. Uh and it's, it's different every time. When she's been with somebody like that her whole life, her world has changed so drastically that trying to figure out what you're going to do next is one of the hardest things. I find lots of people, when, when they're grieving, especially in a situation like that, are like, okay, now what do I do now? You know, yeah. they, they're just kind of lost. They, they may be prepared for it, especially in a case where somebody's been sick for a long time. But that doesn't really prepare you for that um, emptiness. And it, you feel kind of lost out there in the universe someplace that, that you're not grounded anymore. And it, it takes some diligence to, to work through that and get to the point where you can really... Um, be happy and grieve at the same time. The, the people who can't get to that point, who, who remain in their sadness, are the ones that have the most trouble. Yeah. So it's good to focus on, on what's good for you, what, what makes you feel better. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And, you know, part of what I do is I help people, people tell their personal stories. Just because sometimes people don't know how to put the words together. And then not only do they tell their stories, is I help them find the teachable moments in those stories. You know, take some of the, some of the funny moments throughout the stories, you know, and then that'll help to break up the sadness. You know, mm-hmm. like, when, like when I talk about my father, if I just talk about the loss, you know, then it's, it's like you, you can never move on from it. Cause like there were some times in the process, even though his health was failing, there was some time, but he just said some funny, funny stuff, you know? So, so like, as I'm telling the stories, it's like, I just throw in, throw in that stuff as well. So, so it's like, you know, this doesn't all have to be sad, you know? And then just coming to, coming to grips with the fact that like, I was telling my siblings, I was like, guys, like at some point people are going to deal with this. Like people deal with this every single day. I said, it's just our turn. You know what I mean? It's our turn. Dad had, he had a, a really good, a really good life. He had everything, everything he wanted. And he had a good ending. You know, it's like, I looked to all the people who struggled during COVID with their loved ones being alone and not being able to go to their nursing homes. It's like, like, imagine if, if he survived three more months, that would have been him. 
you know? So he, he was able to pass with three generations around him. We all got to say goodbye. You know, like he, he was, he was alert, you know? So he knew exactly what, what was happening, you know? So, so it's like, I, I really, I really can't be sad. Like I miss him in the physical form. Of course mm -hmm. I do, but I, I just can't be mad at, at the way he was able to have his final moment. That's that's so wonderful that you get to have that kind of experience. And it's something that we can kind of strive for to, to pay attention to what's going on. Some people are just in such denial. Uh, I know my, my first husband who died, interestingly, was a bioethicist, which meant that he dealt with the ethics of, of living and dying and, okay. and what he did. And he was on, on the committee at the uh, medical center, the regional medical center, where they made life and death decisions when there wasn't anybody else to make them. And he taught the class at the, the college that all the nurses had to take on how, how to face dying. And so, and he, he was, he brought hospice to the community where we lived uh, when it was not that popular or not that, you know, people didn't know that much about hospice. So he yeah. was able to get that into our community. So he was very familiar with death and he was, um, he had health challenges for about 18 out of the 22 years we were married. Wow. And the last two were, were pretty bad. And, he really, uh, about maybe an hour and a half before he died, he asked me if he was going to get better. And I thought, oh, wow. I had to say no because we were always honest with each other. But I realized at that moment, this whole time, he was doing what he was doing because he thought he was going to get better. He was going to be the same old guy that he used to be. Yes. So he he didn't really have the opportunity to accept his own death, even though he dealt with people every day in his life who were dealing with that. He didn't recognize it for himself. Gotcha. So, I, yeah. you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I think once you, I mean, I've never been that close to death, knock on wood, but I think once you actually get there, things kind of change. Because my, my father used to always say, when he can't build anymore, that's going to be his time to go. And mm -hmm. he, and he, he, he pretty much called it, <laughs> you know, like he, he was, he was pretty close, but just in those, in those last months, he, he like, you could see that he was, he, he didn't want, I mean, nobody wants to die, but you could tell that his, his stance was definitely softening on it, you know? Mm -hmm. So, so it's like, I just think once you actually get to that point and even with my mom, you no, know, she was getting kind of frustrated with him at some some point because he was getting snappy and you know kind of kind of like demanding. So those uh, he was at a at a rehab center, and I went to go to go visit, and she happened to come outside right as I pulled in, and she's like, "Robert, I'm gonna kill him." <laughs> she's, like, <"Yeah." laughs> she's like, "I'm gonna kill him." I was like, "I was like, breathe, like what's happening?" And you know, she's telling me how he's acting, and I was like, "Mom." You have to remember, you're well. I said, he's clinging to life. You know what I mean? It's like, you just have to think about that. He's clinging to life. It's like, just take what he's saying with a grain of salt. You know, because like, like I said, I don't know what it's like to be that close to it. And I'm sure mm -hmm. he, he was 79. You know, he had stage four heart failure. So it's like, he, he knew it was coming. You know, and, and that's got to be a scary thing to wake up every single day thinking this could be the last one. It, it can be scary. Uh, it it depends really on on how how you live your life on on whether it's scary or not. I yeah. I know that uh, when Ron died, my husband who died four years ago, he he was a religious science minister, and that was just the opposite of a bioethicist. Yeah, true. <laughs> and he was uh, he we lived in the moment. Our whole relationship, we were very much in the moment. And when it was getting close to time coming for him, he recognized it. And we didn't talk about it. He didn't say like, well, you know, I'm going to die real soon. He, we didn't do that. But he said, uh, let's just start letting people know that I want to uh, talk to them. Mm -hmm. And I knew what that meant. And, and they knew what it meant. We ended up having 
friends and family come from the mainland and spend the last week with us here. Yeah. It was like a party all week long. Mm. And during that time, he was able to, to FaceTime with anybody who couldn't come here so that he actually got to say his goodbyes and any last words. He left nothing unsaid. And by the time he finished with all that, and we were all still there, he was kind of he really slowing down for like the last day and a half. Yeah. But everybody around him, they were wonderful. Um, we we played different kinds of music. His his daughter loved to do uh, hip hop. She was she was a dancer, or still is a dancer. She does other things, a lot of other things too. But that was something yeah. she really liked. So she played real upbeat music for him. Mm-hmm. That she knew that that he would love to be listening to and then other people we had uh, somebody came over who was a healer here on the island that that played kind of a flute and he he played for him other people sang for him um and he was he was vegan because he had done a lot of research and found that with all that was going on with him that that was the best way to eat so i even became a certified vegan chef and he was vegan and that last week i said okay what do you want to eat? What what can I get for you or fix for you? And he said, I want ribs and soul food. <laughs> you know, I want some collards and some cornbread and <laughs> fried chicken. And I said, okay, that's what you want. That's what you get. And yeah. everybody did that. Nobody questioned like, well, aren't you vegan? You know, <laughs> because uh, he, his veganism served its purpose for when it was there, but when it came right down to it, he wanted that last experience of what he had grown up on and what he just loved to eat. And he, he really relished it, and it was really cool to see him be able to do that. That's awesome. All right, how did you meet your first husband? My first husband, um, I met him at a party, actually. I was taking a, a class at the the college to avoid taking it at the university where I was going because I was scared to death of this one particular class that was a graduation requirement. So I thought I'm going to take it. It should be easier at the college than here at the university. So (laughs) I did that in in the summer. And at the end of the class, the instructor asked us over to his house for a party. And um, my husband was a a faculty member at the, the same college there. And, he had invited some of his friends too, and he was there and uh, we just hit it off. He was, he was so funny and upbeat and positive and such a pleasure to be around. And it, it was, it just kind of naturally fell together that, that we were just supposed to be together. And it turned out we had tons of things in common, things that he hadn't really thought about in, in years. He was much older than I am. And when he was in college, he was very involved in theater and he sang a lot. And he just hadn't done that since, since that he joined the military when he got out of college and um, just all that stuff went behind him. And then he, he got his uh, degree so that he could teach at the college and started teaching with his, his philosophy. And it then <laughs> all of a sudden, he's with me and he goes, Oh, I, I, I love to sing and act. And I was a, a theater major in college and or at the university. And I took a class where I had to direct a one act play and I asked him to be in it. And boy, he took off. He was hooked from <laughs> then on. So we did lots of theater together. He had lots of opportunities to sing. And I even eventually opened my own live theater and school of arts. And okay. he just loved that. We did that together and he had so many opportunities and he, he just, he really loved his life. Seems like you, you awakened that back up for him. I did. And I'm, I'm so glad I did because his, his whole family was, was very involved in different kinds of theater. His mom was an executive secretary at MGM and, it, and this was back in the day. He was a lot older than I was. And so she had, uh, she was used to dealing with stars and people all the time with what she did. And that's, that's kind of the environment he grew up around. And all of his cousins were either singers or um, opera singers or ballet dancers or other things in the arts. So it's like he fell back into the place of where he always thought he would be. Love it. Absolutely love it. All right. So, did he end up getting sick? Well, he ended up um, having 
heart issues. Okay. We, we, it was um, our fifth anniversary when he, he just, he wasn't feeling great and really not feeling great. Mm -hmm. So I, I had a hard time convincing him to do anything about it, but a, a dear friend of ours was a doctor and, and he just kind of stepped in and he said, look, you know, <laughs> you're going to the hospital now. And he did and ended up with seven bypasses. I didn't wow. know there were seven things that you could bypass. <laughs> <laughs> For real. <laughs> but they did. And he um, and they also discovered at that time he was diabetic. And so he had like this awakening. And when, when he got home and started getting better, he went to cardiac rehab all the time. He lost a ton of weight. So he was able to get off the insulin that they put him on because his weight was, was really good. And yeah. he, he just did really good for a while until it got to the point where he, he was half Italian and half French. And he loved to eat. Mm -hmm. And he just could only be good on that diet for so long. And <laughs> Eventually, it caught up with him, and uh, the last couple of years, his his heart was really failing. He was really having trouble with that, and then he had a, a fall, which uh, he, he broke his hip. He had to have surgery for that, and that anesthetic from the surgery put him into renal failure. So then he had to go on dialysis. Mm -hmm. So we had all those things working together That's toward the end there. That's exactly what my dad experienced at the end with, with his heart failure. He ended up with diabetes, like never really had diabetes, diabetic issues. And same thing, his kidneys failed. And uh, I, I don't know if those are all, you know, intertwined some, somehow or just, you know, somehow how related. But, yeah, he went through, through that as well. And so did you notice changes in him? Before he went, well, obviously you said you did, but what were the specific changes? I'm trying to piece it together with what my mom was noticing with my dad. Because my dad came to my gym because I, I have a climbing wall like where, where the, they come and they jump over the wall. And he was going to extend it two feet for me. So he came down, he's got his clipboard and his tape and he's measuring everything. And he, he looked like his normal self. And then it was like, I think it was 10 days later or so, my mom called to say, you know, I'm bringing dad to the hospital. It's like, don't, don't panic. And, you know, just to, to get him checked, he hasn't been feeling well. And then that was when we found out that he was having heart issues. And then we started tracing the timeline back to where we noticed he was getting winded a lot more. But as I said, at, you know, 78 going on 79, is he just getting old? Is it to be expected? You know, and but he, his heart was probably slowing down then, you know. So just like were there any noticeable signs that you can pinpoint that maybe anyone li listening can bank into memory or like if you start seeing these things, you know, get your loved one to the hospital. With with him, he was he was a happy guy. Yeah. He loved to laugh. He um, all the time was was people just really enjoyed being around him, and they they loved it when he was in the theater because he he could just really let go and was very entertaining. And with him, he started getting uh, grumpy, mm -hmm. and he, he just wasn't a grumpy person. Yeah. And the the morning when we finally started do some doing something about it, he he was just not being nice to me at all. And I said, what's, what's going on? You know, this isn't you talking. And he, he just was kind of, kind of jumpy and agitated. And I said, you know what, let me just take your blood pressure. I'm, one of my careers was a, a nurse yeah. and I took it and it was sky high. Okay. And I said, okay, I'm not sure what's causing the high blood pressure, but I'm sure whatever it is is what's causing your mood. And we, we need to go to the hospital. And he said, oh, you know, no, I don't need to go to the hospital just because I'm cranky. And I said, <laughs> so, uh, he, we did. It was quite an ordeal to get him to actually go. But we did with, within a, a couple of hours of when I took that blood pressure and it was like that. So with him, he had... He had not been as happy for the couple of months before this happened, but it wasn't, he just seemed to, to be a little down, but he still would laugh and, and still uh, smile. And yeah. so I, I kind of thought, I don't know whether he's having a, a mood change problem or, or something's happening. Yeah. 
but the, it was really his uh, personality change, and and he was he was fine actually. When when he was in the hospital, they they decided to do an angiogram to find out what was going on, and the doctor, the cardiologist who did it, I didn't know, and he didn't know Jacques, and he but, came but out for, after. For us lay people, what does that mean? An angiogram means that they uh, put a like a, a scope through a main vessel in, in wow. your groin that goes up into your heart to see if you've got any blockages. Gotcha. And that sounds awful. Yeah. It's, it's not fun. They do it under anesthetic, fortunately, oh, okay. or a conscious sedation they usually use. Yeah. And they can see if you've got blockages and if they're the kind of blockages that they can put a stent in, you've probably heard of putting a yes. stent in which yeah. they kind of open it up or if they're ones that are so severe that they actually have to be surgical, surgically corrected. Mm -hmm. So the doctor came out and he said, I'm going to tell you something, but you can't tell your husband. He said, your husband, you know, he's really an uptight guy. <laughs> and I thought, mm. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I had to give him extra sedation because he just wouldn't calm down for us to be able to do this. And he said, what we found is so bad. It's really, really bad blockage. And he's got one of the, the blockages that he has is called the Widowmaker. Well, that scared me to death. Okay. And he, he said, and, and you can't tell him this because if you tell him this and he gets more upset than he already is, he's going to die before we can get him to surgery. Yeah. I thought, oh, great. And I, as I mentioned before, we were honest with each other always. So yes. when, when he came around, when he was back in his room, he said, what did they find? And I said, well, they found that you've got some blockages in your heart and you're going to have heart surgery to correct that. And he said, oh, okay. And I climbed up in bed with him and we were laying there snuggling and the doctor comes in and he starts giving him this BS of not, not what was going on at all. And, <laughs> and my husband said, wait a minute. My wife told me what's going on. I'm cool with that. And I'm, I'm glad that the surgery is going to make me better. Yeah. Doctor was furious with me, oh, but no. I knew my husband well enough. And I think, I think a lot of us do in situations like this where, you, where you're looking for something. I knew him well enough to know that he was uh, not going to respond the way the doctor thought he was because he, he dealt with the truth. He dealt with facts. Yes. And that's what, what could calm him down. But to see a, a drastic change in personality like that was my, my key to know yeah. that we needed some kind of intervention. Something was happening. And it, it wasn't the psychologist he needed to see. It was, <laughs> it was a doctor, a yeah. physician. Okay. Yeah, like when you were talking about how he was treat, treating you and it was so out of character, you know, again, back to my mom <laughs> when they were in the hospital she, I'm sorry. So I'm just I'm chuckling because I'm I'm remembering her facial expressions. Where I, <laughs> I get I get to the hospital. I'm like, hey mom, and she kind of just gives gives me this face. I'm like, what? She's like, no. How, how about you telling you how he's so snappy and snippy with me? Yeah, she's like, he's as nice as pie to them effing waitress, uh, not waitresses, to them nurses. <laughs> it's please, it's thank you, it's thanks, sweetie. She, She's like, I go in there to cut his pot roast, and he tells me he's not an effing child. <laughs> I was like, wow. <laughs> All right, so he, he he passes away, and how were you able to, to process that? It was tough because uh, I, I even took his class at the college because I could use it for continuing education units for my nursing. Yeah. Yeah. And I... So I knew all his philosophy about death and what happens and everything. And he, he was, we were well known in the community with all the different things that we did. And when he first got sick, we had tons of people uh, coming to visit him all the time and calling and checking on him and that sort of thing. But from that point, it was two years before he died and the people just started not coming by anymore. It's like, They'd kind of dealt with it. They were moving on. And here I was with with nobody around me, nobody to, to really talk to. And, and it was uh, it was it was hard. And I'd call people, you know, they, they'd say, just let me know if there's anything I can do. Well, that doesn't work because yeah. I'd call them and they didn't answer the phone or didn't return my messages. And it, it was frustrating. And I, I had 
an amazing, amazing experience of uh, the person who had been my best friend starting right after eighth grade. Uh, we, we were best friends for a long time and she ended up actually marrying the guy that was the first guy I ever dated. And he, uh, they got married because it was during Vietnam. And in those days, if you got drafted and you had a girlfriend, you got married before you went off to war. And when he came back, he, he was not the same. He, he had lots of severe problems and, she ended up having to uh, take take their kids and run away. Actually, wow. she she went up to Alaska and disappeared, and so I I hadn't seen or heard from her in in years. Wow! And somehow I I still haven't figured out exactly. It was one of those meant to be things. She found out where where I was, and she said she she did it. She was a computer expert. She just an absolute genius, and in Silicon Valley did a lot of of neat stuff and she it did some sort of search for me back before people knew what google was or if google even existed at that time but she found that i'd written a book and she contacted my editor and explained the situation and said is there you know can is there a way that you can give me that i can contact her so my editor contacted me and gave me her information and i was able to get a hold of her so she said she was coming down to California to take her, her daughter to grad school and she wanted to come visit me while she was there. I said, wonderful, you know, come on down. Gave her all my information. And then, of course, when she came down, I was at the hospital with uh, Jacques. And he, uh, it's a long story, but ultimately she, she found out we had been moved to another hospital. That's when he broke his hip. And she came in right after he had had the hip surgery. And it, it was such a wonderful reunion. And Jacques' son was there with me. He said, why don't you go? You've, you've been here 24-7 for quite a while. Go with your friend. Go have dinner. You know, spend the night at home with her. And then uh, he said, I'll stay with, with dad all night. So I said, great. Well, we connected so well. It was just like we never dropped a beat. And I convinced her to, or I said, I didn't convince her. I said, I have a room in my house that I'm not using now. And she didn't want to be too far away from her daughter who was in grad school. So she was thinking about ways to not have to go back up to Alaska. And I said, well, you can just stay with me. And so she ended up staying with me till about four months after he died. And the two of us took care of him together. And I think that's the only way I was uh, able to get through that time without just falling apart myself. Because it was a lot of work. And with yeah. with no support from all those friends and family we thought we had, it, uh, it, was, it was tough. But it was really wonderful to have that kind of a gift of somebody to share it with. Yeah, absolutely. Like right, right when my dad passed, my... My brother came up from Florida and he stayed he stayed with my mom. My cousin came up but but she suddenly passed last year. But um last year or this year? She passed this year. And but she came up so like my mom had a had a lot of people, but then once they once they went home, it's like I was trying to get down there as much as I could because I, I only lived thirty-five minutes from her. But just so she could she could have some some support. But then I said to her, I said, you know, I said, I'm not going to come down for a few days. I said because you need to just process this, you know, the way you need to. Because like my dad, he was kind of a pack rat, you know. So he was he was an engineer, so he had every possible tool imaginable in, in his garage, and it took us weeks to sift through all of his stuff, like weeks. So we were constantly working and trying to find his documents, and like mom was dealing with the bills and the creditors and all this other stuff. So it was just constant work, work, work. And then so like I told her, I was like, you need to just sit down and just be one with your thoughts and just process. I said, so I'm not going to come down for a couple, couple of days. Like if, if, like if you need me, call me, of course. I said, but I think sometimes people forget to do that. It's like they get so caught up in work or they'll turn to other activities or in worst case scenarios, they start self-medicating. But it's to just just take the time and just feel it. It was like there was really only one real meltdown that I had. It was just like when it finally hit me that like I can't just pick up the phone and just call them. 
And I just had that one meltdown where just bawling, bawling my eyes out. But then after that, I was okay to move on. But I think sometimes people skip that part. So like when you work with people, do you find that's the case? It's not unusual at all. Um, They, uh, I think for some reason in our society, we've been told we have to be brave and put up a good front. And that's just not so. You you need to feel what you feel and and work your way through it. And one thing that you mentioned was dealing with all of his stuff. One of the greatest gifts you can give to your loved ones is have all your stuff taken care of. Yeah, (laughs) it's true. Because there's there's just so much going on. I had uh, an aunt who, it, <laughs> one of my aunts was killed in a car accident. And after the service, we all got together to, to eat at another aunt's uh, home. And my aunt said, I have something I need to tell you. And I said, okay. <laughs> she said, I uh, made out my will and in it, the, the doctor or not doctor, the lawyer asked me uh, who I wanted to, you know, if, if I, it need be, who would be my durable power of attorney, who would make my healthcare decisions and all that sort of stuff. And I, I put you in, in my legal documents. I said, oh, well, thank you. I'd be happy to do that for you. I said, when'd you do this? And she said, well, about six years ago. <laughs> and I, I said, you know, I'm really glad you finally told me because since if something would have happened during that time, I wouldn't have been able to do anything because I would have had no idea that you had chosen yeah. me to do that for you. <laughs> and I ended up having so much to do for her. It was it was really incredible. Both my mom and my aunt had a, a kind of a brain tumor called a meningioma that is something that you don't operate on and yeah. it just eventually you die. Yeah. And but you get a little goofy on the way out, and <laughs> so my aunt wasn't a really reliable resource. And I oh, I could I could write a book just about the whole process of taking care of her and what we had to do. And all I had was that will that she'd written many years before. I didn't know anything about what to do with her stuff, uh, exactly what she would want. I, I tried to talk to her when, when we started recognizing that something wasn't wrong or something was wrong. And she um, gave me enough information that I'm, I'm sure that I made the decisions that, that needed to be made in her best interest. Yeah. But boy, if, if I would have thought to have that conversation with her while she was still with it enough, to be telling me this is exactly what I want, it would have been so much easier. And it was it was very similar with my mom because of her yeah. situation of just the gradual deterioration and not knowing what was happening with her. And she and my dad were both very, um, they used to say, hold your cards close to your chest so <laughs> nobody could see what's what's going on. And, and they both were that way. So, and they owned a company that I ended up now I, I I still own that company, but they hadn't told anybody the the really important things about what needed to be done, and mm. that was a a real wake up call for me. I thought I I just really should have stepped into that sooner, but I knew when when Dad was still alive, he didn't want anybody to know what was going on in the company because he'd almost lost it once for one of his employees learned everything he could from my dad and opened up the same kind of company in town and almost put him under. And from then on, he just didn't tell anybody anything about what was going on. Yeah. And it's an ambulance company of all things. So (laughs) I started uh, working at that ambulance company when I was 13 or well, actually 14 years old. My dad traded our home for the company when I was 13. Wow. And back in those days, you only had to be 14 years old and have an advanced first aid card to go on ambulance calls. So I started going on ambulance calls before I started high school. (laughs) Wow. So (laughs) it was uh, quite an adventure. And I'm still, the company now is uh, 60, this is its 61st year. Wow. And still operating in a very small town and, they're doing amazing things for the community now. I'm, I'm so proud of them and what they, they're accomplishing. And I know that ultimately I've 
made the company into what my dad and mom really wanted to have. And I'm glad I was able to do that. But had we talked about it more, it would have been so much easier. So I, my point in all this is if you've got somebody that you're anticipating is going to be the person that will need to step up when the time comes or the person that's going to have to clean up your house. We actually, with my aunt, we ended up having to actually have the house demolished. It was that bad. It was horrendous. So if, if you know, well, everybody knows, we all know we're going to (laughs) die. That's a given, you know, there's, And you can't get away from that. So it's a good idea while you've got your wits about you to really talk to whoever it is who is going to be in in the position to take care of your affairs, tell them where things are. With my aunt, I was able to get a joint checking account with her before she died. So I was already in her finances and I was able to write checks from her money to take care of things for her after she died. And we didn't have to worry about things being locked up and having to worry about it. So there's all kinds of things that you can do to be uh, aware of that. Yes. Let me, yeah. yeah. Let me jump in. I think I don't, I don't know what the episode is, but if, if people go back into a previous episode, this is maybe about six months ago. We we did it. We did it an entire an entire show on that topic. Oh, that's my, great! Yeah, because my guest she suddenly lost her sister. Her sister was only thirty six years old. Oh and, wow! And she was saying it was it was a nightmare trying to pick up all the pieces. So she actually started a business to where people can like upload all of their documents, and it's all in one spot. So when that oh, time, that's so yes, cool. Yeah, so when that time comes, you log in, and everything is right there. So, yeah, her name is uh, Sherry. It's either Sherry Franklin Williams or Williams Franklin, one of the two, but her name is Sherry. But, I'm yeah, going to look that up because yeah. I'll refer to people to that source because that's something people really need to have. Yeah, I'll, I'll connect you with her via email and you, got, you guys can, oh, that'd be great. can chit-chat and, you know, bounce ideas off of each other since concerning you, you pretty much work with the same, the same clientele. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'll make that, yeah. I'll make that connection. But, but yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so so let's talk about your second husband. So how did you okay. meet him? Um, Match.com. Okay. Yes, <laughs> I was trying to own it. Yeah. <laughs> I was surprised. Um, I had oh, and a while after uh, Jacques had died, I was teaching at the university, and I kept running into a colleague of mine there, and she said, you dating yet? And I said, I'm not going to date. You know, I'm not going <laughs> to get with anybody else I I you know that's just not going to happen I'm, I'm perfectly cool where I am and she started saying to me every time I'd run into her you got to go on match.com mm-hmm. and I thought after I'd been hearing this so many times I thought there, there must be a reason she's saying this to me yeah so I thought okay I'm going to sit here and I'm going to make a list of everything that I would have to have in from someone to be in a relationship with them and I figured that would solve my problem because nobody was going to match all the things on that list. (laughs) So I did that before I went on match.com and I went on and sure enough, nobody that was popping up was any, anything like somebody on the list. This is the first day that I was on match.com. And then I ran across Ron's uh, bio that he wrote and I started checking things off the list. He was everything on the Mm. list. Nice. There, there were two things that I didn't anticipate, that, that he was a religious science minister and that he was black. I, yeah. I didn't know that that was going to be part of the equation, but yeah. those were the only surprises. Everything else was exactly what I had described as who I wanted to be with. And that was on a Thursday. By Sunday, <clears throat> we went out to dinner for the first time, and we were together ever since then. Nice. So it was, uh, I, I think that somehow my my friend knew that this was supposed to happen and, and one of the things that was really ironic about that is that a, a few weeks after we got together he said oh, I want to meet your friend <laughs> I want to thank her <laughs> I said okay so I called her and she said come on over and we were sitting there and they kept looking at each other kind of funny and I thought what's up here and it, it 
turned out that they thought they were recognizing each other, but weren't quite sure how. And it turns out that they were at UCLA at the same time, involved in the same organizations, doing the same projects and, and things at, at that point. And uh, they, they were really tickled that they found that out. But beyond that, she, <laughs> when, when I, I first met him, I, I should go back to this when I, I first met him. She said, so did you go on Match.com? And I said, yes. <laughs> she said, well, did you find anybody? And I said, yes, I found the one. And she said, really? <laughs> How'd you do that? And I said, well, he just is. I've got a picture. You want to see it? And I showed her the picture and she got this look on her face. And I thought, oh, gee, this must be somebody that she'd been dating or <laughs> you know, had something gone wrong. And I was a little worried. And she looked at me and she said, he's my minister. Ah. So... <laughs> They say the Lord works in mysterious ways. That's right. <laughs> and and she didn't go to church that often, so he didn't even know her from church because she, she went a few times in the back row while he was there, and she only knew him well enough to know that that was the minister of her church. But it's still, it, there's, there's two coincidences that, that happened with that where, as you said, uh, God works in mysterious ways. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's like that whole law, law of attraction thing. There was so many times where... Things will be put in place, but then we let our, our own beliefs talk us out mm -hmm. of it. And it's like, you know, I'm, I'm trying to give you this avenue and you're just not taking it. It's like when, when I talk to people about about uh, making money online and they, they, they approach it like it's like the biggest scam on earth. And I'm like, guys, you, you buy things online. Almost everybody buys something from Amazon. Everybody does. <laughs> you know? so, so it's like, what's so wrong with being on the other side of it? You know, but but just it's just everyone's natural skeptic. You know? mm -hmm. So for you, it was probably just that natural skeptic, but the persistence paid off, and then you met the one. So, all right. So what what happened with him health wise? Well, he um, had had high blood pressure his whole life. I think yeah. he'd been on blood pressure medication, and he uh, just got to the point where something was going on. We weren't really sure what it was. And he, he was, he was a very strong man, uh, six foot two, these gorgeous big shoulders, very, very strong. Yeah. And he didn't, he didn't complain about things. So it was kind of hard to see what was happening. Yeah. And then one day we knew that he was having a heart issue. We just knew it. And we went to the emergency room and that's when he started getting diagnosed. And it turned out that he, like my previous husband had congestive heart failure. And then they both ended up on dialysis eventually. Wow. So I kind of had the deja vu, same experience that's, twice. I was going to ask that. Wow. So, and he, he was in and out of the hospital a lot from that time on. Yeah. Um, but we we handled it so well, you know. They're they're just they're, we didn't have any secrets. We always told each other the truth, and that made all the difference in the world in being able to just cope and deal with whatever it was what was going on. Yeah. So so how how long what was it from the time he got diagnosed to when he passed? Um. About three years. Oh. We spent the last two here on, on Maui. Yeah. And I'm sure that he had his heart had been failing before that. But the, the way we found out, we'd gone to a, a meditation retreat in, um, I can't remember the name of the place. It's way up in the desert mountains in California. And it was freezing cold. The, like in any place there was water when you'd get up in the morning, it was ice. Oh, wow. And our, our room was kind of cold. And, and when we got there, I, I wanted to go on a, on a walk to kind of explore where we were. And he said, you go ahead. I, and I said, no, if you're telling me to go on a walk by myself, I'm not going. Because yeah. that was kind of a, a thing for me, a clue for me. And in the middle of the night, he woke me up and he said, we need to leave now. And I said, okay, do we need to go to the hospital? Do I need to call an ambulance? And he said, no, we just need to leave. And it turned out that the altitude was really affecting his heart failure. And once we got down the hill, it was a lot better. Um, but it was enough that we started getting it checked out and found out that it was congestive heart failure that was causing that. And it went on from there. I think they caught it in an early stage, I'm assuming. 
Uh, I don't think so. I no. think he was having it for a long time because when, when we first met, he had a hernia and they recommended surgery for it because it, it was a pretty substantial hernia that you could see. Yeah. And he, uh, they said they wanted to do some tests before they did it. And they, they did one of the tests uh, was an echocardiogram where they oh, yeah. look at, at his heart and the function of his heart. And they actually let me be in the room with that. We just kind of, <laughs> I just kind of went along with everything. And he just, mm-hmm. if anybody said anything, he'd say, well, she's with me and I expect her to be here. <laughs> you know? So mm-hmm. I actually saw the echocardiogram and I could see that his heart was enlarged. Okay. Uh, significantly. They didn't tell us that much about it. So I asked them and they said, well, yeah, it's enlarged, but they, it's like they didn't want to tell us too much. But when they told us that they wouldn't do the surgery because of it, um, I thought, okay, this is a bigger deal than we thought it was, but they didn't refer him to a cardiologist. They didn't do anything about it. And uh, Actually, a couple of years after that, the hernia had gotten really bad. And so we had moved by then to Ventura, California. And we took him into a doctor and he said, yeah, you really have to get this taken care of. And he said, well, no problem. But what about my heart? And, and so they looked at things and they said, uh, we don't see that as a problem with the surgery. So I thought, well, maybe the other doctors were being too cautious about that. But we also, I had seen the echocardiogram, so I was kind of anticipating this is going to catch up with him at some point. Yeah, and he's he's going to realize that uh, his heart isn't functioning is functioning as effectively as he would like it to be. Okay, and so so now he he passes, and how was mm-hmm. how was it for you going through this a second time? It was so much better. You just yeah. wouldn't believe it. And a whole lot of that had to do with the fact that I dealt with so much the first time. Yeah. And this time I said, I'm not doing it that way again. I, I have got to not self-isolate. I've got to figure out what I want to do with the rest of my life. And one thing that he taught me and that we did always was I learned to live in the moment. Yes. And when you do that, if anything starts to get to you, you can just say, Okay, in this moment, everything's okay. You know, might have had problems in the past, don't know what's going to happen in the future. But right now, I can be happy. I can smile. I can figure out what my purpose is for the rest of my life because it's it's shifted. And I need to figure out what it is that I'm going to do. So through that, I started uh, writing. I started teaching other people who were grieving how to different ways that they could deal with it positively uh, led to the writing of my book. And now it's led to me, me talking to people all over the world about what they can do and that they can be happy when they grieve that uh, the death of someone you love does not mean that you have to be sad the rest of your life. You can keep them in your heart. You will grieve for the rest of your life because there's no time limit on grief but you grieve in a different way. It's like, like I hold both my husbands in a really special place in my heart and always will. I will always love both of them. And at the same time, I can smile. I can laugh. I can help other people. I can have a great life. And that's what I chose to do. So it was much, much better for me the second time. Right. So, so when did you, you decide to write the book? I decided to write the book when about uh, seven months, I think it was, after Ron died. He had a really, really good friend. and the, We were family friends. With, uh, they lived a couple of blocks away from us, and we'd get together all the time on the mainland. And he was a great guy. Everybody loved him. And he just dropped dead out of the blue. No diagnosis up till that time. We didn't. Everybody was shocked, especially his wife and his two daughters. And I thought, oh, I've got to do something like right now because I know she's not prepared for this. So I wrote her a letter that said everything that I could think of that she needed to pay attention to right then and what she didn't need to pay attention to. And I actually emailed it to a friend that lived a couple of blocks from her so she could print it off and hand carry it to her. So she got it within hours after he died because I knew any other way that I tried to get it to her 
I wasn't sure whether she'd get it or see it or how long it would take. So she told me later how incredibly helpful that was to her, that nobody else talked to her about things like that. And that made me think, I've got to do more. So I decided that I would write her a card every week for the first year after Chap died. And when I decided that, I thought, okay, if I'm going to commit to this, I have to have some idea of what I'm going to do for 52 different times. So I sat down and wrote 52 different things and made her these cards and started sending them to her. And then as, as a writer, as I was teaching writing at the university, I said, you know what, I have an outline. And so I got an agent, got a publisher, and have a, a book that was based on those cards that I wrote to my friend. I love that. Love that. That's awesome. All right, so what, what are some of the key takeaways in the book without obviously giving it away? Well, the, I think the key thing about my book that makes it different is that each chapter at the end has something actively, or the, the person who's reading it can actively do to help them deal with their grief. Um, lots of grief books are memoirs and tell stories, and which is, is fine. It's a great way to work through your grief to write about it. But I, I didn't want it to be just that. And I do have a lot of my story in there, but I also talked to a lot of other people who had lost someone, and I have different perspectives, different stories in it. And then these, these things that you can do that come at the end of the chapters uh, are, are really good. They're really positive. I've had people tell me I never would have thought about doing something like that. And I'm so glad you said something because it really made a difference in my life. And if they can say that for each chapter, then wow. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Yeah. It's like people don't, don't understand the power of just being vulnerable. You know, so mm -hmm. the, the fact that you can get up here, tell, tell your story the, the way you can, you know, there's someone out there that needs to hear it just the way you tell it. And then mm -hmm. same, same way when I'm going through, you know, my father's process, you know, his, his process before he passed, you know, there are people out there that just need to hear it the way I say it. And that mm -hmm. that's true for everyone out there. There's a lot of people on, on this, on, in this world, a lot of people, billions, and there's a select few that are waiting to hear you. You know, mm -hmm. so so for those people who are listening at home, if if you've had issues dealing dealing with something, you know, something, any type of loss, any type of grief, then seek out seek out people that can that can help you. You know, people that have been where you were and they navigated through it, and then mm -hmm. hear, hear their stories, and then you know, even if you have multiple perspectives, that's fine. But whatever it takes for you to carve your path. And then once you get there, share your path. And mm -hmm. then just, just, just keep the cycle going and going and that's going. That's right. Right? So if, if you have, if there's someone listening right now that doesn't know what to do to get to the other side, what are your words of advice for that person? The very first thing I always say is to take good care of yourself. Yes. Because a lot of times in grief, people just aren't thinking about themselves. Yes. They, they'll uh, either stop eating or they'll eat too much. Uh, they tend to sit in one position and not get up and move or walk or do anything like that. Uh, they tend to not reach out to people to communicate with them. And just the self-care is, is vital. It's, it's where you really need to start on, on your journey toward making any kind of improvement in your life at that point. Yes, and what, what I share with people is, you know, you're thinking of it internally. I said, think about it from the perspective of the one you lost. Yes. You know, because like that day when I had my meltdown, I could just hear my father saying, now what is that going to do? Yeah. I can just hear his voice, you know? It's like, what is that going to do? And like some of my, my gym clients, got me a kettlebell. It was 79 pounds, you know, one pound for every year of dad's life. And they had it all de decorated. Cool. And they said, this is not to be used in the gym. You know, so I said, okay. So I brought it home and it's sitting, it, it was sitting on the floor in my living room. And 
every time I looked at it, I could hear my dad's voice saying, mm. what good is that thing doing there? You know, <laughs> what good is that thing doing there? You know, just take that thing to the gym. Let, let somebody use it. They're just sitting there collecting dust. Like, I, I can hear him. And so I ended up going to the gym and said, I, I understand what you guys said, but this has to be in here. Like, it just has to be because that's what he would want. You know, and so that's like, so cool. Yeah. And so like one of my clients, she suddenly lost her brother and, you know, obviously they were blindsided. She took it really, really, really hard. I remember she comes in into the gym one day and she's trying to, she's trying to keep herself composed. And so I put my arms around there and I was like, listen, he's watching you right now. I was like, do you think he likes seeing you like this? You know? And, and then just like, Every time I say that, it just hits them kind of differently because, like, they forget. It's like, yeah, they're they're gone in the physical form, but they're watching you from somewhere. You know, yeah. it's like it's like they're still here, and you can still honor that person by being the best version of yourself. You know, and, and yeah. I know I know it's tough for people to get to that place, but once you get there, you got to teach others how to get there. Absolutely, be the you example. Know? Yes. Yeah, I've I've had that conversation with people I, like three times in the last few days, three different people yes. that, uh, you know, that w- they, they're just not behaving like themselves <laughs> and it, it's not serving them. And I'd say, OK, what would he say about you doing that? And they, it's like, uh oh, you know, I got caught <laughs> and. Yeah. they'll they can start uh looking at things differently because i i know i know jacques wouldn't have wanted me to be sitting around and being sad but i couldn't figure out how to do something different than that yeah. where with ron i know ron would be expecting me to be getting out there and helping other people and smiling all the way yeah. so if, if i ever start to have something that gets me down a little bit and i'll i'll cry a little bit he the yeah. fourth anniversary was of his death was um, a couple weeks ago and that hit me for yeah. some reason it hit me and i thought okay i'm i'm just gonna deal with it and i cried some i wrote some i went for a walk took a deep breath and said okay i can i can yeah. focus now i can get back to me but i i didn't shove it down and not deal with it i dealt with it so that i could yes. move forward and yeah, i dealt with it in a way that i knew that he'd appreciate Yes. Like my dad loved Smokey Robinson. Loved him, loved him, loved him. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, I was going for a walk earlier today and one of his one of his songs came came on and just it you know, it just it brings it back. You know, it's like dealing with it doesn't mean that we don't still feel emotions. You know, it doesn't mm-hmm. mean that that we don't still feel pain. And I think that that's what some people struggle with in grieving. It's like that doesn't mean you forget. You know, mm-hmm. it's, like, it's like that doesn't mean you forget. That doesn't mean you don't care. It's like, you mm-hmm. know, I'll hear a song like that or or I'll go go down to see my mom and I'll walk into his garage. And then I just have visions of him rebuilding an engine and I can hear him talking to himself. He, he always had conversations with himself when he was building stuff. And, you know, like it, it just brings you back to that place. And like, you know, you stop for a second, might get teary eyed and. And then, you know, go inside and t- tell mom, you know, you know what? Like, I just had a vision of him working on the car in there. So, you know, kind of choked, choked me up a little. It's like, you know, I don't try to hide it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, it's like, it's like you, you don't hide it. You know, being vulnerable is okay. And, and it's all right to be like, you know what? I freaking miss him today. Like, I really, really miss him today. Yeah. And, and that's an okay thing. It's like, that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. That doesn't make, make you weak. That makes you human. That's it. Yes. You know, we're human beings. We we have the cry, the ability to cry for a reason. Yes, yes, <laughs> you know, so absolutely. If we weren't meant to do it, we wouldn't have tear ducts. That's right. So, right. So, I, okay. I know I had uh, one day when I got home from wherever I was uh, early in our relationship, Ron said, I found our song. <laughs> I said, "Oh, that's nice. <laughs> Do I know it?" <laughs> so he he had uh, he played it for me, and it was Stevie Wonder's song "As." Mm. I don't know if you know that song in particular, but it's yep. it is something else. Yes. And a, a few weeks ago, I just got in this groove of every time I turned around, "As" was there. It was on a TV commercial. They used it as a, a theme that was going through a movie I watched. It just kept every it 
popped up and popped up. And I thought, you know, that's just him saying hi, you know, and it, it, it just feels so good. And every time I think of that and think of the words and how, how powerful they are in that song, it yeah. just uh, warms my heart. Love it. All right. Well, it's time for us to go. You know, these, these hours go by so fast, so, so fast. So uh, give give us, I mean, you, you kind of gave us a final word, but I'll give you the opportunity to give another final word. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, basically, take good care of yourself. Reach out to me if you'd like to. I, I do classes. I have coming up uh, Grief and Happiness Alliance, which is a, a membership program where you can come all the time and meet other people that are in the same boat that you're in and it's all online so that, that you can easily do it. And we'll be talking about grief and happiness uh, in all that we do there. Perfect. Love it. So that's loving and living your way through grief.com is the website. Visit, re reach out. You know, if she said anything that resonated with you today, like I said, absolutely re reach out. And uh, thank you very much for taking the time and sharing your story and getting vulnerable with us. Much appreciated. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And uh, don't sign off yet because I'm, I'm going to have some uh, some connections for you. Okay. All right. Thank you. Have a great day. All right. So that was Emily. If you tuned in late, make sure you go back and watch the entire episode. Dropped a lot of good, good knowledge there since you got deep into having to move on from two husbands that passed away. So there's a lot of info in there that she shared that uh, she shared and you can get in touch in touch with her i took it down you can get in touch with her again by going to her site loving and living your way through grief.com and again i want to thank her for coming to the show and you all have a great day mm -hmm.